welcome to the Physics Teaching Podcast, a podcast for teachers of physics made by physics teachers. Physics teachers like me, Robin Griffiths, a full-time teacher of physics from year 9 to year 13 now. And physics teachers like me, Thomas WP, a part-time A-level mostly teacher of physics and back to just A-level next year. I've served my time with Year 7. You've served your time, you're done. I have have done. More on that later, maybe. So this is officially the 100th, as we count them, the 100th episode. It's taken 100 episodes, but you've discovered you're in an Al Pacino today. I did. It's (laughs) the physics teaching podcast. Lovely. (laughs) I got my husky voice from celebrating my wife's birthday last night. Um, I discovered that I sleep longer if I go to bed after midnight, which is very late for me. After midnight, my goodness. Very late for me. We're sat in my lovely summer house once more. It's such a glorious day. Beautiful, beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful day. But here we are, and we're going to talk about what we want to talk about, really. I I was really interested in what inspired Robin to be a physics teacher. Uh, And then he pretended he was really interested in what inspired me to to get into into physics and inspired me in physics. He's pulling faces at me now. But before we do that, we just wanted to thank uh, another dear listener who's contacted us, said nice things. So thank you, Dylan for your email uh, and he does say I do hope you go beyond 100 episodes because it's been delightful hearing you talk about current events but with such a fantastic back catalogue he is on message isn't he there? yeah absolutely um, he's got plenty to keep him going uh, and what Dylan says really goes back to why we started this all those years ago three years ago absolutely yeah. it's for the merchandising opportunities <laughs> no no what you, no go uh, because he's an NQT working as a physics specialist in a small school and he's the only uh, physics teacher there. And we're supporting people like that, but also we hope we've been uh, a support for non-specialists teaching physics too. And it all stems from when I was working on my own as, as the only physicist in a school and I you know, needed to talk to physics teachers. So I rugby tackled Robin, who's wearing his Lions t-shirt today, and made him do a podcast. So here we are. And here we are, yeah, absolutely. And it, it is, It's one of the things, actually, when you say things that... that tempted you into teaching physics I mean I I love physics as a subject because for me we'll talk about what inspired you in a moment but for me it was um it it wasn't any sort of big interest and a lot of people get into it through space and space physics and things like that for me it was more to do with this idea of things like quantum mechanics relativity just weirdness that happened that seemed to me really weird and cool in my young geeky nerdy ways and that's what got me sort of into studying physics and I just still think it's a unique and fascinating subject with which looks at the frontiers of human knowledge which is a, a grand thing to look at that, that that is a big project to to think about so physics I, I think is an essential subject it's a cutting-edge subject it's a frontier subject there's new discoveries being made in all the time all the time and that's really really uh, exciting and when I heard um, and I was working in IT at the time I was working as a computer programmer of all things you know, when I heard that physics teachers were in sort of short supply and there were very few of them I felt like some little I have a physics degree I'm working in something completely outside of it it is time to go and actually try and communicate that passion for that subject to uh, the next generation and it's been a, it's been a blast it's been a rush I do love teaching that crazy stuff to A-level it's interesting though I don't, don't, didn't study that at my A-level I think you must be a lot younger than me that's a lot, obviously a lot younger than me. <laughs> Excuse me. That's obviously what it is. <laughs> that must be it. Now, I don't think it was. No, I think no, I, we're the same age, aren't we? Same. I don't think it came across because I had a physics teacher who who loved to communicate about things like that and used to you know, go off message and and go off the syllabus every now and again and 
talk to us about the weird and wonderful world of physics. And I, I read a couple of. I remember reading Stephen Hawking's brief history of time when it came out, uh, and these sorts of things made me just think, "Wow!" I mean, I'm not sure how much of it I understood, but uh, but I certainly loved it, and it, it drew me in. Yeah, I'm one of those many people who read Brief History of Time and didn't understand it all those years ago. But I mean, I, I my inspiration. I mean, I I was born a year before they landed on the moon. They landed the moon in June 1969, nearly exactly 52 years ago. And yeah, you are much older than me then, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, so, well, less than a year, isn't it? No, no I, was, I was born in the year of the moon landing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> so, I mean, I grew up around, and it was in the background when I was growing up, the moonshot, and as I became more aware, I, I remember watching Patrick Moore and talking about the Soyuz mission, and the, obviously the astronauts were all over the news and the Saturn V rocket was this extraordinary machine and I always have had just a complete buzz about that and I'm you, you, do, you talk to a lot of physics teachers young and old who are really fascinated with the Apollo missions I've, I've hinted at getting from my wife to get an Apollo a Saturn V Lego model for my birthday for so many years I've even taken her to see the Saturn V in Houston Still, I'm not very good at hinting. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure that's not going to cross it. I'll make sure I mention it a few times yeah. on the way. I don't worry, don't worry. But I think you're right. It's funny because a lot of people point to things like people talk about the Manhattan Project a lot, which is um, uh, certainly an incredible feat of technology and engineering, but for less than edifying purposes. Uh, whereas the moon landing, of course, was for much more hopeful and pioneering purposes wasn't yeah it? and op- optimistic and exciting and staggering and you, the, the you know thinking of it as a teacher I kind of wish I was teaching in it now because the opportunities to teach and be inspired by what was going on in that mission are breathtaking and uh, yeah, Elon Musk doing incredible things you know landing on a pad but that's computing and it's it's yeah, you can do the forces and the accelerations, and it's, but it's not the same as doing it. Basically, I mean, the, the, the technology is unbelievable in, in, for the age on, on the Apollo mission. Yeah, the, but yeah, Musk, it's just really, really, really clever programming. And, and the engineering on the rocket must be extraordinary, but it's just not, it doesn't ring my bell like Apollo. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The, the computing, one of the things somebody said to me was the computer on the, the LEM was less powerful than... than one of the first electronic calculators that came out. And, yeah, and I, just I, there's a brilliant amazing. podcast that I'd recommend to, if you're not listening to this one. There's a fantastic podcast, if you're a Apollo nut like me, called 13 Minutes to the Moon, done by the BBC. And it's a documentary that's based on the 13 minutes from when the Eagle undocks from Columbia and sets off and lands. And they go through, they break the whole commentary down and they go and talk to the people behind it and they tell you the history about it and they talk to the women who wove the memory the, the memory was these magnets and wires I have no idea how it worked but it had this incredible memory just yeah because the, well, the individual stories are fabulous and I just looked up actually while, while, while you were chatting there Margaret Hamilton uh, was one of was the programmers uh, one of the programmers on Apollo and um, the code that she wrote for Apollo was was sort of printed out and stacked up and it's taller than she is and there's a wonderful picture of her standing next to this pile of programming that she's responsible for that is um, is taller than she is which is wonderful yeah well the the hidden figures that brilliant film about the the black ladies who were instrumental in in making the computing work because all the heroic engineers weren't interested the computers. 
as they were called. Yeah, they were commuters back in the day. Yeah. No, I mean, that's just, I've really enjoyed in the last couple of years the um, all the memorabilia about Apollo. Like there was a fantastic film a few years ago. There was a they they got all the archive footage of Apollo and scanned it and made a movie about the moon. And it just just like sitting there crying and that's just all these all my dreams come true i've read about it so much over the years and i've got this we're sitting here looking at my life magazine hmm. and it's funny the environmental movement that's that's grown up in the last 20 30 years has, has often used the Earthrise shot yeah uh, as a, a sort of an emblem if you like a, an icon for, for that movement and the idea that you know we only have one planet and it's a pretty insignificant thing hanging in space I think that's one of the things that, that really inspires a lot of physicists and a lot of physics teachers is this idea of the vastness of space the vast emptiness of space and the fact that we are this one tiny planet and that's our home and that's all we've got this tiny sliver of atmosphere on top of a, a rock yeah. uh, I think that was Apollo 8 wasn't it that was the year I was born hmm. uh, Jim Lovell took that picture Ah, Earthrise there it is in my time magazine yeah that's rather lovely oh, I just... I just, you know, just thinking about it, I've been to America to look at the, they, you know, Americans are so lucky, the Smithsonian, I know it's a big country and getting there's a challenge, but you can walk from the Smithsonian and see all these incredible things from aviation and, and spaceflight history, and you can see the, you've got the, this, I think they've got this spacesuit that Armstrong wore, you know, just sitting there. They've got the, you, you look up and go, oh, that's an interesting model of a, of a, of a old-fashioned plane. No, this is the Wright Brothers plane. This is the, the actual, actual plane. Was it Kitty Hawk or something? Yeah, it was called? I, can't, I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. Then they, oh, that looks really like the uh, the plane they broke the sound barrier. And no, it is the plane they broke the sound barrier. It's just extraordinary. And, and in there, they've got the they have the bell of the Saturn V thrusters there, and it's in a right-angled mirror. So they have one bell and then, and then a quarter of a bell. And you can stand there and you can see the size of this thing. And that was amazing. And then eventually I went to Houston, took my family down there. That was a funny one. It was quite cool. emotional. And one of the things that I always plays on my mind a bit as I'm sitting there going through teacher assess grades or assessment objective number three or whatever's in the spec this year or how to get them to describe a graph properly and get in the keyword <laughs> gradient increases or whatever is you know where where does that magical kind of moment come from for our kids you know how how do we communicate what what do you do to to make it magical to to if you like dangle these these little um uh, bits of of inspiration in front of them so that they can hopefully become the physics teachers of the future i think it's exploring the valley isn't it and it's i mean maybe i should be getting more involved in the musk stuff because you know he tries to do inspirational stuff he shot his car into space didn't he and you can track it there's websites so you can track the car yeah do you think that was inspirational marketing i think it might have been a bit of marketing well, but there, that's but... isn't that the same thing yeah, to probably. a certain extent i mean the forces i mean like the forces on these these machines and i just love the the i mean if the kids knew i was they could just get me on this and i would talk about this all lesson every lesson they'd never learn anything new but um <laughs> I just I just love the simple physics of a rocket that when you light the rocket it balances on the the engines and then the only thing that makes it accelerate really is the mass change and that's just really good simple kinematics and that then the rocket works then it's it's perfect it's serendipitous isn't it you start off slowly while there's a lot of air and then you get slowly faster until you then there's no air outside then you go really fast they do throttle up there don't they there's that max 
there's a, there's a phrase for it, I can't remember where they're going so fast and there's still quite a lot of air and there's a lot of friction and that's the most dangerous time. And then max Q, I think it's called. And then when they're through that, they can really go for it because mm-hmm. there's no air. It's phenomenal. It's a really useful bit for F equals MA, isn't it? Because you, you do get that sort of extension bit at the end of, of the question about the rocket and you, you say, you know, it accelerates even, uh, you know, the, the, the force and the weight are, are balanced initially when it leaves the pad or, is, you know, this sort of thing. Why does the acceleration get greater as it gets higher? And they have to actually really think and understand uh, the mass inertia and F equals MA to, to actually answer that question. So it's, it's a nice inspirational thing. Do you think, so what, what sort of things, what would talking to perhaps non-specialist physics teachers who are sitting there going well yeah you know i see that physics is an inspirational subject it doesn't inspire me particularly yeah. how do i inspire the kids so we've got this idea of exploring rocketry apollo uh, elon musk we can talk about all this um we can talk about the fact that obviously it's sending jeff bezos into space you know pers- yeah. personally i think that that's <laughs> That's, well, I don't think I should get into that. <laughs> yeah, probably, I, don't think, I don't think anyone wants to see my face there. Um, let's hope Jeff has a very successful flight. Good luck, Jeff. Tragedy, Jeff. Here at the and, Physics Teaching Podcast, yes, we we're right you behind well, you. Right behind you, Jeff. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's hard, isn't it? Because if I said to a biology teacher or a chemistry teacher, "What can inspire me about biology and chemistry?" For me, it's talking to them. I mean, I've got a very, very good friend, Anne. She's been on the podcast. Um, who's a biology specialist, is retired now. I could listen to her all day talking about biology, and that does inspire me. And it, I think so it's, you know, listening to Dars Wibbling on might be the thing to do. <laughs> oh, brilliantly done. Hey, hey. Nice to work it out. Actually, we are the most inspired. Oh, yes, there you who go. Who knew? No, but listening, I mean, we are enthusiastic about physics, and there must be other, other physics teachers out there. But again, if there's nothing else... <laughs> then well, listen to Robin. Well, no, actually, it really, yes. If you scra- if you if you scrape the bottom of every barrel you have, <laughs> and then every bucket, then come around and listen to me. Yeah, exactly. That's it. So, I was wondering perhaps if one of the things was crossover because I know, I mean, chemistry and, and physics is a lot of crossover between chemistry and physics. And you know, whenever I, I was actually doing it, my lower six this week, we were just doing um, absorption and emission spectra and energy levels within atoms, and we were talking about you know electron energy levels and how effectively that that's that's the whole of chemistry pretty much the whole idea of energy levels and the electrons sort of and how, how those energy levels interact and how those energy levels come together <laughs> i can hear things being thrown at well you, you know the, chemistry is just electrons no well no i mean the, 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 the this this subject is so deep that it's grown a whole science around itself you know that this 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 idea of inter- interacting electrons and how electrons interact on the shells of atoms is so complex and produces mm. such a, a rich tapestry of knowledge that basically there's a whole science d- devoted to it, which, uh, you know, is no disrespect at all to my chemistry colleagues because um, it's, it's fabulous stuff. But, but that's that crossover there, isn't there? That, that's a crossover. If you're a chemistry mm. specialist, perhaps that's where you can find the inspiration for the physics. And similarly with biology, I read recently, and I don't know whether this is fake news or not, and perhaps biology specialists can tell us this, but I read recently that your sense of smell relies on quantum tunnelling. Not smell buds. No, apparently not. That's my, my best bit of... So, sorry, listener, the, the context for this was that uh, when I was a science teacher, we had to teach biology, and a friend of mine we used to have this conversation about how badly we taught biology and things we'd made up on the hoof that were just complete and utter rubbish. And uh, one time we'd been talking about sensory receptors, and we talked about cones and rods on the retina, and we talked about taste buds on the tongue, and one of the kids asked, well, what, what's the receptor for your, uh, for your nose, then? What's your receptor for your taste of smell? And I think I answered in a moment of panic, smell buds 
but uh, anyway, it wasn't good. Okay. Anyway, back quantum to the tunneling. It's quantum so, tunneling. I read this, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, so maybe somebody can confirm, but there's a crossover there, isn't it? That's, that's a p- piece of crossover. I'm pretty sure I also read it a couple of years ago that the same applies to photosynthesis, and you can't understand photosynthesis if you don't understand quantum tunnelling. Now, I have no idea what quantum tunnelling is, being a bit of a classic engineer without a physics degree who didn't do anything like that in my A-level. Just what's quantum tunnelling? Just help me out. Okay, so briefly what it is, is um, because particles um, exist as probability distributions called wave functions, if you put a particle in like a classical box, if you think of a box with an extent of of a certain distance, um, the wave function, if you like, the probability of the particle existing, uh, is non-zero outside of that box. So it just teleports out. So basically, if you if you have a barrier there, um, the wave function decays exponentially, but there is still a portion of it that's outside the box. So in other words, the um, particle has a probability that is non-zero of it being outside the box. In so, other words, it can escape. So there must be particles outside the box. Yeah, so basically you can't confine uh, very small particles very easily because they will jump. I think I have read about that and not really understood it. Okay, that's interesting. So like electrons, isn't it? They can only exist at different levels. They can't exist between them, but they but they can teleport effectively between. Them. Well, that's kind of a, a that's kind of a standing wave, isn't it? Of, yeah, a, it, some weirdness going on there. Even that's a little bit um, because it is a distribution, and, yeah. and what we tend to think of the shell is just the peak of the distribution. So it's the place it's most likely to be, but it's not yeah. necessarily the place it is. Yeah. yeah. Luckily. I got an engineering degree and I do the engineering topics and occasionally I'm thrust into teaching that stuff and I, well, this I'm is the it. classic one page ahead when I teach that stuff and as I go through it I'm a bit better each time I mean, weirdly my last two years my kids have chosen engineering on AQA and you think oh I'm an engineer and I've mentioned this in the podcast before we do uh, rotational dynamics wasn't on my degree we do uh, thermal physics like uh, the laws of thermodynamics wasn't on my degree because it was only half engineering my degree so I did my degree was really mechanics and manufacturing and all that sort of stuff so it's always good fun I think the next time I do engineering they might get a good experience and they might actually take an exam and we'll find out if they can do it. <laughs> yeah, stranger things have happened. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's a really good point, and you, you do get better, and the more you're exposed. To, and I say this to, to non-specialists: you know, the more comfortable you get with the physics, the the more um, you'll find you have those little anecdotes. Um, what, what a colleague of mine used to call the physics hinterland, um, which I thought was quite a nice way of putting it. You start to build that up, and I, I think yeah, I started to build that up as I got more interested in biology. But it's definitely true, I think that. There are bits of biology that tend to appeal more to the physicists. There's probably bits of physics that appeal more to the biologists. I remember I, I loved um, evolution and um, adaptation, Darwin, all that. That that was that really appealed to my physics brain, and I used to, to, to love teaching that uh, eventually because I, I th- thought I built up enough knowledge and a, enough anecdotes around it to make it make it fun and interesting. So I agree, and that's but that's probability, isn't it? You can do really good maths and physics um, models of evolution. There's a brilliant video i'll put it in the show notes that i really liked about people saying you know you can't the evolution can't make a clock and a programmer puts sticks and cogs in a in a pot and just lets them evolve randomly and every hundred generations he pulls out what three and sees and then chooses the one that's the most like a clock and just puts that one back in just that tiny gift and over billions of generations eventually has something that, that ticks and can keep time and it's, it's really really interesting so yeah you have to start with 
sticks and cogs, but they're pretty simple things. And that's a purely that's more physicsy. That that's why, that's why I think that appeals to me. So, so soapbox is out and dusted off now because this yeah. is another area that I think, particularly for us, is when we wear our science teachers' hat, is really important. Is to realise that a lot of the really exciting work is happening across disciplines these days. Yeah. I mean, when I worked at the Institute of Physics, our president at the time was Dame Julia Higgins. Um, she was the president of the Institute of Physics. She'd spent her life in chemical engineering. So, uh, the, the, this idea of this artificial boundary between chemistry, physics, biology is is a bit um, of a of a false. Um, image that we give to to students i think a lot of the time and we talked about biology there a lot of the work in biology now is being done mathematically it's on big data sets Mm. and things like that and there's a huge shortage of people in biology with the math skills to be able to work through that and so they're leaning into the more numerate sciences uh, to to get the expertise to to work on these things so you now have people who study physics who studied maths who are now working on huge big data set problems in biology and genetics because they have those skills so I think that's a really important thing to emphasise as well. There's an awful lot of cross-disciplinary work, and that's perhaps where a lot of the most exciting science at the moment is happening. All that protein-folding stuff as well, that's really interesting. And to go on off a slight tangent there, I'm just sitting here looking at my front cover of my my Life magazine. I'll tell you what I love about the moonshot, is the things that people latch on to to say it's fake are things that I've always loved, like... There are no stars. Wow, that's really interesting. Why are there no stars in the pictures? I didn't think, oh, that must be fake. I went and found out, and, and oh, it makes perfect sense. And this is, again, this is physics, isn't it? That if you took, they're in bright sunlight, and if you keep your camera, your manual camera on the settings when you take a picture of someone in bright sunlight and point it at the sky at night, it's, it's going to happen in a thousandth of a second exposure with a, with a tiny aperture, and you're not going to get any stars at all. I, th- I found that really, really interesting. And, you know, why are they wearing white and. How come you can see Buzz? You know, you can see Buzz Aldrin coming down the steps, but he's in shadow. Therefore, it's fake because they must have backlit him. And you think, well, I, even I can answer that one. Just backscatter from the rocks. It's not. It's not, it's not. Well, the, the flag's another one I love. Oh, the flag! Yeah, it's just fabulous. The flag. <laughs> the, the, it looks like it's waving in the wind. Yes, it looks like yes, it's waving. But in if the wind. you look carefully, there's a, because it's it's like a it's a right angled rod, isn't it? And the the astronauts I've read they didn't like how it looked when it was flat. So they used to push it back a bit so it looked wavy. Because that's what flags look like, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny, and it's like if you put a bed sheet in space, you know, and you stretched it out, you know, would it be perfectly flat? Well, probably not, no. because there'd, there'd be a little bit of fluctuation. There'd and be a little tension. And, yeah, exactly. And the weave wouldn't be perfect. Mm. I mean, I, <laughs> I might, I'll see if I put this in the show notes. It might even be the background of the podcast, actually. But my wallpaper on my phone is, uh, is a funny little thing I found. It's an astronaut lying on, on his back on the moon with no stars. Excellent. And there's a balloon above him. And I'm sure the person who... Who, who drew it thought the balloon was going up but I've always seen it, the astronaut reaching up to catch the balloon as it's falling towards her perception very important yeah, I just, but yeah I, 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 I do, but I do like I mean, the, thing, the, the moon landing fake conspiracy is, is a lovely way of um, case studying if you like crackpot theories and why you know just cherry picking evidence to support your particular hypothesis while igno- ignoring the overwhelming body of evidence that exists to counter your hypothesis is is not you know a, a proper way to do anything and it's a great way of getting into the whole idea of well you know what is evidence and why we have science i mean science is just how the human 
race has come up with its best way of gathering information and deciding that it's true. That's that's all it is. It's it's a knowledge system, if you like, and that, that's all. People talk about it as if it's a religion. People talk about it as if it's some sort of um, point of view. Uh, that's not what it is. It's 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 a belief system, and once you view it from that point, then arguing with it becomes a, a little bit more trite, perhaps. I was just thinking about refuting these ridiculous ideas. There's there's a there's a fantastic documentary on Netflix called Behind the Curve, and it's a documentary following flat earthers and how they have this messianic belief in it, and they do experiments. And they spend a lot of money getting a gyroscope from an aeroplane to show that the they some crackpot idea about it. if you the time will change and it'll mean that we're on a flat earth and it doesn't and they go oh well this is because it doesn't yes. give us that because of this and then I mean it's really a, a a study on how you can get sucked into this little echo chamber and believe things you know it has so many parallels in the world Brexit and Trump and all these things that you know you have wildly varying ideas about you know people know our view on Brexit, having posted us on the anti-Brexit march. But the, the, it's just, they do scientific tests and then they decide that that's... That, that, yeah, well, that, that can't be right. That can't yes. be right. So we've done the test wrong, we've done the experiment wrong. And it, I, spoilers, but the Earth isn't flat. Listener, you heard it here first. They do this, they, they, try and, they try and shine, I mean, there's, there's some really good physics in it as well, because they buy this really expensive laser and they shine it down a canal, like 20, 10 miles. But they have—they don't understand. It's going to diffract, so they can't. When it get, they're expecting this tiny dot, but there's no dot. Yes, so, they have, so they have to go out and do good science and good physics. Well, how are we going to get around? And then they work out they can just have a bright light and bits of card with circles in. So they reckon they'll line up the circles, uh, and if the world is flat, which it obviously is, they'll all be the same height off the road. And when they get there, they can't see it, and they have to lift it three meters in the air to see the light. And they're going. Oh, and that's where it ends. Spoilers, <laughs> a bit of a spoiler, but uh, but they, you just know they'll go. Well, there's another reason. There's and yeah, absolutely. a lot of them are broken up with their families, and because mm. uh, they're just so messianic about this. And so, mm. well, I can see. Uh, I can't remember one of the cities in America. Insert city name here, Seattle, maybe mm. uh, across the lake here, and that's so far away you shouldn't be able to see it because of the curvature of the Earth. And I'm thinking, well, diffraction. <laughs> Yeah. Refraction. Well, some well, things, yes. some light effects going on there. Probably refraction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the light's just refracting around the, the Well, I mean, it's just, I don't know. You know, people have this. this I always loved it. I read uh, that everybody had this view that, you know, Christopher Columbus, when he set off on his voyage, was worried that he was going to fall off the edge of the earth. Apparently, it's complete nonsense. The, the, the idea of a flat earth had been was, was a, a marginal idea for most of human history because most humans had observed that ships, when they went off into the distance, dropped below the horizon. Yeah, it's. it's absolutely known I mean it's absolutely known because the ship was sailed away and the last bit of the ship you see with it was the crow's nest yeah. I, I think it's complete rubbish that he thought he was sailing off the well this is it. It, it apparently even back then it was marginal so the idea of a flat earth has been this idea that's been debunked for possibly thousands of years let alone hundreds and and uh, yeah nonsense but the, as you say you know people once they get a belief in their head are, are very good and it, it's a wider thing so what do we do about you know as teachers as teachers of science as teachers of physics you know we're constantly challenged to just get the kids more conversant with what science is really about and that's one of the things I find slightly you know I'd be slightly critical of the science curriculum of is that it doesn't really talk about you know there was this thing about how science works you know uh, which kind of tried to get into it but it, it was again very formulaic and you had to be familiar with the idea of peer review and things like that I'm not sure that really you know 
know, I, tells them what to do. Or I how thought it was would. a good effort that, and mm. I enjoyed teaching that. And the, mm. the board I was on at the, the time, I can't remember what it was, did have a good, the best course that I've ever taught. Actually, it was really modern, and they gave them two articles about a, tub, a subject. They were opposite points of view, and the kids could go home, take notes, do all their research, and then they had to come back and, and answer a question on it uh, in the lab. But they could bring all their notes with them. And I thought that, and I honestly, the spread, it was out of 32, and we'd get in a class, you get from four marks to 32 marks, and the ones who got a 32 would all get A's in the end, and the ones who got four would all get a U's, and you didn't need to do the exam. Yeah. I thought there was a fantastic bit of uh, of, of um, examining, and of course it got chucked out because it was too woke when the, the, the new government came in wow. I, th- I thought that yeah. was good and it was a good attempt and it could have got better it wasn't perfect it could have got better but I like that how science works and I think hmm. teaching kids to ask the right questions you know going back to that flat earth you know if, you can ask the kids can you think of any problems with a disc with water flowing, flowing off the edge you know can you think can you ask a question that we could address that might you know, where that, that might show that that's a, a, an impossible situation yeah, it's not difficult to, to yeah. think of a question to address that, but the flat earthers. Hmm. But I, I, I just think it's it's the scientific literacy that that I think, and I don't know that if if perhaps, and maybe it's naivety, but I just think if some of those flat earthers had had got a little more conversant with science when they were younger before they developed their entrenched opinions maybe they'd have been able to challenge them before they became entrenched if you see what i mean so i don't know that that's perhaps a bit of a clarion call but I, i'd hope that, that that's something that science education would do. it would it would make people prepared so that when they do get tempted into entrenched views they see it and they think oh hang on a minute i'm doing what's it Karl popper said about a hidden defense against falsification and you know einstein's famous thing about um uh, his theory of relativity you know i publish it so that people can disprove it not so that i prove me right mm. uh th- that's what it's, it's it's about that's the whole idea of science you put your ideas out there so people can have a pop at them because if your ideas are right they'll be unassailable and if your ideas are wrong then there'll be lots and lots of things that you can't answer and this is the thing the flat earthers what they're doing is just ignoring everything that they can't answer uh, which is totally unscientific. Or molding it to their model i mean i, I mm. would love to feel that we as physics teachers could have built into the spec teaching kids about understanding risk and probability i mean i would take out chunks of physics biology chemistry to teach that it's this whole thing about the blood clots with the with the vaccination that yes there's a chance of dying of a blood clot but if you read the small print on the contraceptive pill it's the same risk per month of having a blood clot on the contraceptive pill and we're encouraging young women to take that for possibly decades and no one seems to care about that and so that's comparing that risk with another risk we all think is completely acceptable and then you have the risk of uh, uh, someone was telling me they went to get the injection and they were all ready to go and then the person said um, have you had breakfast or lunch today and they were like oh yes i have and they're a bit worried there because they were going to be told they couldn't have the jab and they said well if you've had breakfast or lunch today you're more likely to have choked to death than uh, <laughs> die of a blood clot. Well, I'm not yeah. sure about that. I haven't checked the fact yet. That it feels to me that's per year would be. I mean, how many people choke to death? Mm. Well, but it's it's yeah. teaching the kids to understand risk. I think would be a really super valuable thing that we should do. Well, I think also it's just it, it's education of journalists and things like that. And I was really gratified when the whole blood clot thing came out that the journalists who I heard certainly were trying to be really careful to put this in, in, in more relevant terms, particularly the one who reported said that you've got a two in a million chance of dying of a blood clot 
having had the jab, if you get COVID, you've got an 1,800 in a million chance of dying. Um, so that that was like-for-like like kind of uh, comparison. I think that whole idea of statistics, misapplication of statistics, poor understanding of statistics. There's a guy called Tim Harford, does a show on Radio 4 called More or Less, yeah. but he's written lots of books as well, and he's all about public understanding of statistics. So if you ever want to um, sort of uh, have a look at, at somebody who's um, trying to spread the word about good application of statistics, Tim Harford, not a bad guy, at Ross Statistical Society as well, got to give them a big whoop because, you know, it's not exactly the most sexy of subjects, the Royal Statistical Society, but they certainly do their best to try and make it a, a subject that people can be inspired by. So, yeah, I think, I, mean, I think there's a place for it in the science curriculum. I really, really do, uh, and I would enjoy the challenge of thinking up ways to teach just about understanding risk and understanding probability. Like you say, that eighteen hundred. Do you say eighteen hundred compared to two, and 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 real world risks versus the risk that you know. But I hate it when they say. Well, eating raspberries means you're twice as likely to stub your toe on a Wednesday. And it's like, well, okay, twice as likely. What was my chance of stubbing my toe on a Wednesday? Oh, it was one in ten trillion. Okay, so now it's two in ten trillion. It's completely meaningless. It's, yeah. it's just scaremongering. And I think we need to teach the kids to be literate with that. And I think if that doesn't fall to the mathematicians, I think it falls to us. Yeah, correlation versus causality. Yeah. Um, the two things. Oh, there's a brilliant website matter. for that where you can... Mm find things that correlate can't mm. you yeah absolutely you know, custard cells in nebraska versus divorce mm. in maine that sort of thing well this is one of the things that and again so what a wide-ranging conversation this is that <laughs> this is this is one of the things that's a worry about big data and google and people like that so google don't care about any type of causality at all they just look at patterns in their data so patterns in their data say that if this particular search term appears twice as likely in this area they're more likely to have i don't know um early onset Alzheimer's or something so therefore we can go over there and flog loads of adverts for this that and the other and that's how it's literally that 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 unsophisticated they look for the patterns and then they follow them uh, and it's made them a lot of money doing it so that sort of that you can see the appeal of it you can see the use of it in many ways it is useful for example apparently Google looking at their search terms can work out where the flu virus is yeah. going to spread with greater accuracy than the CDC's yeah, I read they could follow the deterministic kind of models. Through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they can they can do all that based on search terms. They don't know how it works. They don't know why it works, and they don't care. But they just they can follow it. You'd say, well, that's a good thing because they can anticipate where it's going to crop up next. But at some level, there is this question: Well, can you follow up the why? Which is a much more interesting question, I think, to me certainly. And what does that mean? And, and how does the science back that up? So, that, yeah, you saying that makes it brings me right back to teaching physics again. I mean, it's the physics teaching podcast that when you teach um, probability and and in decay, in radioactive decay, and you say we, well, you know, we all love the dice practical. And we've talked about it in the podcast. I love that, and I, you know, I have each kid rolling ten dice, and then taking out the sixes, and then blah blah blah, and then we do it for the whole class, and then we, and it, we, you see a pattern, and you say, well, what if we had a million classes doing it, and and, and you, you get this, you get a perfect relationship. So the bigger the number, you get, you could get magical patterns appearing and that's what you're saying they're aggregating a million people searching for new dry cough and they can tell that the COVID is coming so okay everything everything's physics teaching robin everything's absolutely i remember carol kenrick once uh, having a chat with her i'm sorry about this carol i'm i'm talking out of turn but a friend of the podcast carol kenrick uh, and saying that physics was like education because if you had a, a sample of a gas or something like that you could say that it had a, an average temperature of 25 celsius or, or whatever you wanted to do or 298 kelvin if you prefer but if you got an individual 
molecule of the gas, you couldn't tell at all what it was doing or what its kinetic energy was going to be. You could make a guess and you could have a probability and you could do all these things, but you can't tell what it's going to do. She said that's as it is with, with a population of or a cohort of school children. Uh, you can know on average what they might do, on average what they might achieve, but each individual behaves in a way that is individual to them. Uh, and as teachers, you know, we're, we're beholden to, to respond to that. And I thought that was a rather lovely parallel. I would do as a physics teacher or the biology and chemistry teachers go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, that to me, I thought, what, what a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I like that. If you're in the same inertial frame as a molecule of oxygen, as it, you wouldn't know its temperature, you wouldn't know anything about it. You just know it was a molecule. You might be spinning, but if you span as well, you wouldn't know either. That's mad. You'd see a little bit of the, um, the vibration of the bond, wouldn't you? I suppose that's yes, all you'd, you'd yes, uh, bounce back and forth well it's, it's good you mentioned carol because there's so many people we should thank we've oh. got to a hundred um there's been so many guests thank you so much some you know, petite people i particularly like to mention uh, pat caplow who's been a huge huge uh, fun to work with and we kind of lost touch with him recently but we'll get him on he's always keen it's just it's, everyone's so madly busy now at the moment mm, yeah carol kemrick um james de winter James has been fabulous. Uh, Dave Cotton, who, yeah. who uh, said so, some really kind things recently about the yeah. progress, very, very, and such an enthusiast for physics. Thank you, David. Sorry, David Cotton, I should say. David so. Cotton. <laughs> then there's, of course, Matt Bowman, our listener in Peru. Absolutely. He even came on the podcast. Our you, little dot in Peru on the map. Tipping our hat to you and eating a marmalade sandwich, <laughs> yes. Matt, with no next, stereotypes next, Peru at all. He us a picture of tipping his hat next to a Versace pendant in Peru. <laughs> uh, we, can't, we can't do without you, Matt. Um, and so many other people who've been on. It's just been such a blast. And we really, really will continue. I think we, we need to set a schedule, but less, less... Um, Less aggressive than it's been before because we've both been absolutely whacked this term. We just... It's it's been tough this this term. It's been tough this year, and I think um, yeah, we're moving on. I'm taking on a big job in September, head of sixth form, which is a, a, a new adventure, um, and will be fun. But uh, it's it, that's going to be busy. So um, yeah. So apologies if we're picking, but the back catalogue is still <laughs> there and it still stands. And that's one of the one of the wonderful things about this. I always think it's it's one of my regrets having worked in CPD for a couple of years is that you you attend these fabulous. CPD sessions sometimes where you sort of think wow that was really good I wish I could bottle it and it's just gone because it was just there for the people in the room and there's no mm. legacy of it one of the things that's been lovely about the podcast is that those episodes are still there some of them are topical a lot of the ones we did about COVID hopefully I sincerely hope <laughs> will never need to be listened to again uh, but there are some in there particularly the ways to teach which I think hopefully will, will provide some inspiration for, for people who are uh, on their way to school in the car and thinking I've got to teach sound with your nine period one what the heck am I going to do <laughs> Uh, which is what it's all about really so yeah. that's good yeah so thank you to everyone who's given us ideas and if you want to talk about something on the podcast that's the the easiest way for us to do a podcast is to talk to someone else who's enthusiastic and so just reach out to us we haven't done the email address at the start which always been intended to do at the end when everyone stopped listening <laughs> but you can email us contact at the com, and you can tweet at us at physicstp and there's always the there's always Instagram but someone did message us and it took me two weeks to notice so maybe we should stop giving out the Instagram uh, at physics underscore teaching underscore podcast I will notice in the end I promise <laughs> Never mind, Dave. Oh, dear. Well, just, and finally, thank you, dear listener. I mean, when we start, I'm sitting here in my, we're at the bottom of the Exponential T-shirt, and uh, at the start, we had four listens to the first episode. You have to start somewhere. And we tracked up for the first few weeks, straight up Exponential. It was quite exciting, because we knew by the 30th episode, we'd have the population of the world. Um, We never quite got to the 8 billion 
But we have a solid and loyal following. I think we have, in a week, it's, we, we thought we'd continue when we started if we had 200 listeners at the end of each week. Um, and we're well over double that now. And we always think of it in terms of multiplier, about 150 kids per teacher. And that's that tens of thousands of kids being influenced by you marvellous, marvellous people. So yeah. we will keep going, not as frequently, but we will keep going. Yeah, thank you for being interested in physics teaching for whatever reason. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's, it is a wonderful subject. It's a subject we need to protect, and um, it's a subject that we need to promote. And and I think all teachers of every subject would say that. But but um, we hope we've done a little bit to help you to promote and and develop your love of physics. And uh, go to the t-shirt and buy a shop. No, go to the shop and buy a t-shirt uh, or anything, uh, or buy us a coffee, or buy me a electron diffraction tube for my school although very excitingly I had a message from my head of faculty today no not today this week he said Thomas do you want to spend some other people's money I said yes can I buy a bike he said no I've already put on on the list a a travelling microscope which I've been coveting for a while anything else I said electron diffraction tube and he said S or D so I went and looked up what it was I said D please he said sorry 710 quid's a bit too much it was close he said maybe next year well, you, you, you can save up for the... We can have a fund. You'll yeah, it's a fund. Uh, but a travelling microscope, I haven't, I, I've been looking for one. We haven't got one. We're going to have one. And that's, that's exciting because that, that, I'll be asking for tips from the dear listener on how to use a travelling microscope in different ways. I can think of a few. Um, so that's exciting. He's, Matt's been really good putting some bid for some um, more data logging stuff because I think I really... I saw in a training course once, it was brilliant, where they'd attached a rotation sensor to a track that comes with it so you can do position and then it and then they, on that they put a light sensor and they were running that past the diffraction pattern and it was plotting real time on the, yeah, t- the computer nice. the, the peaks and troughs that was yeah. brilliant interferometry yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's really a really good fantastic yeah so, so hopefully we'll have that for next year well that's good and i think if you look back through the back catalogue i think there was an episode where we spent other people's money um yes. when somebody came to us and said i've got to build a lab from scratch <laughs> this is my budget what should i spend it on and we we went through everything that you might want to buy in terms of oh, it's, all of life is here Yes, and we should also do a podcast on my ongoing efforts to make a uh, cheap uh, Raybox, which is progressing, but on that, more on that another Indeed, day. Yeah, he's, he's slightly singed around the edges, I'm afraid, yeah. dear listener, but that's okay, the way it I've, is. I've moved on to LEDs from lasers. Cleeps <laughs> weren't too happy with the lasers. Still waiting, Cleeps, for your, your, your measurement on my laser Raybox. <laughs> right, and uh, that's it for, for this month, I would say. And it just forced me to say thank you very much, Robin. I mean, it's been quite a journey and i've nagged you quite a lot but you've been well, brilliant and ever exciting and interesting person to work with well I, I just turn up and talk rubbish but you've uh, done all the heavy lifting so thank you so much uh, for all you've done which is, is way in excess of any contribution i made so i just edited badly about one in every 20 episodes that's probably the extent of my contribution so thank you yeah, you edit it as badly as i do in the, in the early days i don't go and listen to them it's just you've got to just got to do more robin just got to do more <laughs> absolutely yeah you edit it and i get these terrible emails going oh i don't know how you do this oh, yeah. <laughs> spending hours on it you said i knock out an edit in an hour it takes <laughs> three days all my fingernails and half of me, what's from left of my hair which is yeah not good Right, thank you, thank you very much, dear listener, and onwards and upwards to uh, uh, episode 101. I, I did all the episodes in my thing, our episode zero, zero one, because I always thought we might get to 100. Ah, good. But we're never going to get to 1,000, I'm just putting that out there. Okay, yeah, so okay. room 101 next time. <laughs> Bye. 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 
thank you for listening to a somewhat self-indulgent physics teaching podcast. We will resume service next time. The podcast is presented by Robin Griffiths and me, Thomas WP, and produced and edited by me, Thomas WP, with Robin doing the show notes. Do get in touch if there's something you want to share. We're always looking for new ideas. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. Music